This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Aktiag. At the start of the year, the GM Word of the Week went through a little bit of a change. Formerly, it was published on the Mad Adventure Society website as one of their many regular features. But when the Mad Adventure Society shut down, we, that's Scott the Angry GM Rem and Brian Fiddleback Casey, we decided to continue the project on its own site as its own entity. And we turned to our fans to keep the show alive by supporting it on the crowdfunding site Patreon. Incidentally, and we mean incidentally, this isn't a plug, it's part of the intro that leads us into the word. Incidentally, if you enjoy the show, you should consider supporting it yourself at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. As a way of saying thank you to our supporters, we, Fiddleback and the Angry GM, spend an hour or two each month in a live chat with our financial supporters. We talk a bit back and forth about the show and some of the topics we've discussed, and then we open the floor to questions and suggestions. And that is how the last few episodes on Weird Monsters happened. And that is how this episode happened as well. One of our patrons, Paul, suggested that we do some of the weirder monsters in D&D. He specifically mentioned the Rakshasa and the Atyug. Well, Paul, you got the Rakshasa. We hope you enjoyed it. Now prepare to be disappointed, because we've got to throw up our hands. The Atyug has no history anyone is telling. So let's get into the non-story of the Atyug. If you're familiar with it, the Atyug, which can incidentally be pronounced as Otyug or Otyug or Atyug, the Atyug is a big, hideous monstrosity. Essentially, it's a bloated stomach on stumpy legs with two long tentacles, a toothy maw, and some eye stalks. And despite the fact that it is violent and dangerous, it has no interest in eating adventurers. Or meat of any kind. It feeds on dung, offal, and decomposing trash. It's the sort of creature that would live under Fred and Wilma's toilet if H.P. Lovecraft had written the Flintstones. It is essentially an organic toilet bowl and waste disposal. Interestingly, the Atyug has gotten stupid over time. As originally published, the Atyug was of low to middling intelligence on par with orcs and goblins, and it could communicate via telepathy. And it would use that telepathy to strike deals with monsters. It would gladly guard monster lairs in return for all the waste it could eat. But nowadays, the Atyug is a big, dumb beast. The Atyug first appeared in the Advanced Dungeons & Dragons Monster Manual in 1977, and it appears to have been an original creation of E. Gary Gygax. It has since managed to appear in every edition of Dungeons & Dragons and, except for second edition, appears in each core monster manual. And despite the fact that it is apparently considered so iconic that it has to be a part of the standard monster roster in every version of D&D, no one seems to have a good story about where it came from, or even what the name means. Several theories have been presented by hobbyists over the years. The most popular seems to be that Gygax was inspired by a scene in the original Star Wars in which the heroes become trapped in a trash compactor and are attacked by some sort of monster who is never shown on camera. Only his tentacles and eye stalks ever emerge from the dingy waste water. Now, it's certainly possible, 
After all, Star Wars was released in May of 1977, and the Monster Manual wasn't released until December of 1977. But the Monster Manual was actually finished in September. Delays at the printer held it up until December. Still, four months is plenty of time to get the creature in. But others have speculated that the Atyug was actually inspired by a lurking tentacled water beast in J.R.R. Tolkien's Fellowship of the Ring. When the heroes in that story reach the entrance to the dwarven stronghold of Moria, they have to circumnavigate a dark, still lake. And then they're attacked by tentacles. Regardless, these are just theories. Now, in addition to being iconic enough to get an entry in every monster manual bar one, the Atyug was also considered enough of a staple of D&D that a bendable rubber Atyug toy was released by TSR in 1982 as part of a line of stretchy toys. Others included the Grell, the Chimera, the Roper, and the Hydra. It was also considered iconic enough to appear in the Japanese video game console RPG series Final Fantasy, and it became an icon in those games as well. You just might not recognize it. See, the Otiug pronunciation, when ported to Japanese, yields Ochiyu. And when that name is localized back into English, you get Ochu. And that should be recognizable as a giant plant-like beast with multiple tentacles and the ability to poison your character with its bad breath attack. Probably from eating all that awful and garbage. And there the story would have ended. And frankly, it would have ended up on the cutting room floor. Unfortunately, this monster seems to have just been pulled out of Gary Gygax's... brain, but it did end up in a video game. Doesn't make a compelling episode. But what does make for a compelling episode? How about this question? How did the Hebrew word for skull become associated with feces? That story begins in April of 1985, when Ed Greenwood published an article in Dragon Magazine number 96 entitled The Ecology of the Golgothra. The tagline for the article was, You don't know the name, but you know the monster. And the reason for that tag was because the Golgothra was the Atyug. Now, if you're not familiar with the Ecology Of series of articles, back in the day, authors would take iconic D&D monsters and invent biological and ecological details to explain how they fit into the world. And many of those articles, especially Greenwood's, began with a short story detailing an encounter with the creature or an exploration of its lair and then included explanatory footnotes as if the story had been annotated by some sort of fantasy National Geographic writer. And this article explained that the Otug's proper name was the Golgothra. And that name translates to Dung Eater. It just doesn't translate to Dung Eater in any earthly language. That's just something Greenwood made up. Now, we here at the Word of the Week love derivation and etymology. And one of the problems with D&D is that a lot of names and words get a little warped. So when a name sounds similar to a word from history, mythology, or literature, we take notice. And that leads us to a hill outside of Jerusalem. A very famous hill called Calvary. Well, nowadays it's called Calvary. But it used to be called Golgotha. Now, I should note that today, we're not entirely sure which hill outside of Jerusalem might have been called Golgotha. But we know there was one because the Bible tells us so. 
Specifically, it describes a hill just outside of one of Jerusalem's gates that was known in Aramaic as Place of the Skull, or Gagolta. In Hebrew, it was called Gogolet. The Greek pronunciation is Golgotha. And why all the skull imagery? Well, some modern folks suggest it was roundish and palish and looked like a skull. But given the biblical description, it probably earned its name because it was covered in skulls. See, according to some accounts, Golgotha was a place for the execution of criminals, usually by beheading. But the reason why the hill got a shout-out in the Bible was because that's where Jesus Christ was crucified. The story of Jesus of Nazareth is a long and complex tale, and it is complicated by the fact that Jesus is both a religious figure central to the Christian faith and also likely a historical figure. But because of vagaries in the historical records and the possibly allegorical nature of Christian scripture, it can be hard to reconcile those tales. It isn't made any easier by the fact that four different but similar accounts are given of Jesus' life in the Bible. See, the Bible, particularly the New Testament, is divided up into several books. These include the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that detail the life of Jesus Christ. They also include the book of Acts of the Apostles, which discusses the teachings of Christ's greatest students after his death and resurrection. There are also several epistles, each of which consists of a collection of letters written to various groups by various members of the faith. And finally, there is the book of Revelation, which is a collection of visions of the future experienced by a man named John of Patmos. Now, according to the Old Testament and Hebrew traditions, there would one day appear a divine figure known as King Messiah, who would unify the various peoples of the world and lead them out of darkness into a golden age. The word Messiah can be translated into Arabic as Al-Masi, and into Greek as Christos or Christ. It is important to note that according to the Jewish faith, the world is still awaiting salvation by the Messiah. But according to Christianity, the Messiah has already appeared. And that Messiah is Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus was born to a woman named Mary, and she was betrothed to a carpenter named Joseph. But as they were not married, Joseph had never known Mary, in the biblical sense, if you take our meaning. So Jesus was born of a virgin woman, and an angel appeared and told Joseph and Mary that he was the Son of God. Now, at the time that Jesus was born, Jerusalem and most of the Middle East was under Roman rule. And the way Romans managed their republic at that time was through the concept of the client state. The Romans would conquer an area and then appoint a local ruler to govern that area. The client king was subservient to Rome and would enforce Roman rule, but would otherwise govern the region as they saw fit. So the area known as Judea was under the rule of King Herod the Great. And this is where history and religion collide. Herod the Great, king of Judea, is a historical figure. And he had something of a complicated history. His father was of Arab descent, but he had converted to Judaism. And Herod's father, Antipater, had gained great wealth and influence by marrying a noble daughter of an Arab kingdom. But when the Roman general Gnaeus Popius Magnus invaded the lands of Judea, Antipater supported the Roman conquest. Antipater befriended Mark Antony and Julius Caesar and became a respected Roman citizen. 
and they left Antipater to rule Judea, the lands of Jerusalem and Palestine. Years later, when civil war broke out in Palestine while Arab tribes invaded, Herod was forced to flee to Rome. The Roman Republic recognized Herod as the rightful ruler of Palestine and equipped him with an army to take his land back. Herod continued to make friends in the Roman political scene, and thus he managed to maintain power through some ugly battles for succession following the death of Caesar. And with his power secured in Palestine, he built great fortresses, aqueducts, and other public works to enrich the nation and his people. But Herod had a dark side. He was known to be cruel, paranoid, and deceptive, even in dealings with his own family. And his mental stability gradually failed him. It is believed he murdered one of his wives and several of his children due to paranoid delusions, and he disowned and killed his firstborn son. He also attempted suicide shortly before his death from natural causes. That's the history. But Herod enters the biblical tale just as Jesus is born. See, his magi, his wise man, had predicted that a Jewish king would be born and would eventually threaten his power. So Herod supposedly ordered the murder of all young male children in Bethlehem. The angel that visited Mary and Joseph warned them, though, and they got Jesus out of there. The Gospels seem to lose track of Jesus at this point, and the tale of his life is picked up about 30 years later, when he meets John the Baptist. John was a wandering Jewish preacher who believed that the Messiah would soon appear in the world. He believed his mission was to prepare the faithful for the coming of the Messiah, and he used baptism as a symbolic cleansing as part of that preparation. According to the Gospels, when John baptized Jesus, it became clear to either John or Jesus himself that he was the Son of God. Jesus returned to his homeland in Nazareth after being baptized and began his life as a wandering preacher. He appealed to the poor and the suffering, telling them that their suffering was only temporary, but that their eternal souls would live on in paradise after they died if they stayed moral and faithful. Various miracles are attributed to Jesus of Nazareth during this time. And his retinue grew, his message gained popularity, and the priests of Rome began to feel threatened, as did a caste of Jewish priests called Pharisees, who enjoyed influence and power under Roman rule after helping the Romans gain power in Judea. Unfortunately, many people soon turned against Jesus. According to the Gospels, Jesus lost his temper when he saw that one temple was being used as a market and overturned several money changers' tables. He then prophesied the destruction of the temple. As he became a more divisive figure, he was betrayed by one of his own students, Judas, and arrested. He was brought before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of the region. There he was ridiculed by the crowds as a false messiah, and anger grew. Pilate tried to spare him, but the crowds, the priests, and the Pharisees demanded Christ be executed. Pilate turned him over to the soldiers and crowds after washing his hands of responsibility. Thus, Christ was led to Calvary, to Golgotha. There he was executed alongside several thieves by crucifixion. Crucifixion is an extremely slow, cruel, and humiliating form of public execution. It is so painful that it gives us the word excruciation, 
which literally means coming from crucifixion. It means affixed to a cross, and that's exactly what it is. The condemned is impaled upon a tall stake and crossbeam affixed by nails or other sharp objects, and left to die of bleeding and exposure. Several scholars have theorized that death could occur due to anything from shock, infection from the wounds, dehydration, being eaten by wild animals, or suffocating due to the inability to support one's own weight and keep one's airway open. And so, Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, died there on Calvary, alongside several thieves and possibly a multitude of other criminals. And according to the Bible, three days later he returned to life, proving that he was, in fact, the Son of God. And in dying and forgiving humanity for his death, he cleansed humanity of its accumulated sins. But how does any of that connect Golgotha, the place of the skull, with Golgothra, the dun-eater? Well, it doesn't. Not at all. And we wouldn't even mention it, if not for a weird, weird coincidence we can't explain. Let's talk about the movie Dogma. In 1999, writer-director Kevin Smith released a very dark comedy loaded with Catholic themes called Dogma. The movie starred Linda Fiorentino as the last descendant of Jesus Christ. She is tasked by an angel, played by Alan Rickman, on direct orders from God, played by Alanis Morissette, to stop a pair of other angels, played by Ben Affleck and Matt Damon, from destroying all of reality by exploiting a loophole in Catholic dogma. At the heart of the movie are two ideas, that of plenary indulgence and that of papal infallibility. First, the concept of papal infallibility. The popular belief, the one in the movie, is that due to Christ promising Peter that the Holy Spirit of God would always guide them toward truth, the Pope of the Catholic faith could never be incorrect. Basically, the Pope can't be wrong. In truth, the concept of papal infallibility which was written into Catholic law in 1870 says that when the Pope makes specific pronouncements regarding a doctrine of faith and when he is acting specifically as a teacher of the faith, Catholics must accept the pronouncement as the law of their faith. Plenary indulgence is one of two types of indulgence defined in Catholic traditions. An indulgence is basically a forgiveness for sins, but it's a little more complicated than that. Essentially, an indulgence occurs when a sinner makes some kind of penance or sacrifice in their life that warrants the forgiveness of a sin. Thus, by being punished in this life, the sinner can avoid divine punishment in the next life. The story of dogma involves two angels who had been exiled by God for their sins. The Pope, played by George Carlin, makes a ridiculous decree that anyone who participates in the opening day ceremony at a new church would have their sins absolved, basically granting everyone present a plenary indulgence. The two angels see their chance to get back into heaven because, due to papal infallibility, God has to honor the Pope's decree. The problem, and the reason this all has to be stopped, is that if this all goes down, God will be proven wrong about something. And according to Alan Rickman, if that happens, the whole universe will explode. Or something. Basically, the logical paradox would destroy the universe. 
Due to its misrepresentation of the Catholic faith and its often scathing criticism of certain aspects of Catholicism, along with its violence and extremely black humor, the movie was panned by many Catholic groups. However, some Catholics recognized that at its core, it also offered a hopeful and optimistic view of humanity and faith in general, and that the satire was directed at particular forms of Catholicism and not the faith as a whole. Meanwhile, it enjoyed mixed but skewed toward the positive reception. As for us at the Word of the Week, well, we thought it was okay at the time. Now, what does any of this have to do with anything? Well, at one point, the heroes in the story have to deal with a particularly foul monster. The monster is basically a humanoid blob composed of... Uh, fecal matter. It is referred to as the excremental, a portmanteau of excrement and elemental. It's also called the, um, uh, let's call it a poop demon. Otherwise, we'd have to use a naughty word. What does that have to do with the Atyug or the Glugothra? Well, the excremental has one other name. And that name is derived from how it was born. And forgive us if this gets a little gross. When a human being dies, they lose control of their muscles. And one of the consequences is that they empty their bowels. While in dogma, the excremental is a malevolent spirit composed of the fecal matter of a massive number of criminals who had been executed on a particular hill in Jerusalem. And that is why the excremental is also called the Golgothan. Now, try as we might, we could not turn up any good logical reason to connect human excrement with the name Golgothan or Golgothra or whatever. But it is a weird coincidence. Especially given that all records seem to indicate that, except for one very comical attempt at a live play podcast, Kevin Smith has never played a role-playing game. Otherwise, we'd suspect that Kevin Smith might have tried to inject a subtle nod to the Dung Eater with his Dung Demon. In the end, we have to call all of this business a giant coincidence. And we have to conclude that the Utyug really is just one of Gary Gygax's weird creations. Inspired by nothing, and connected to nothing. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by The Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. <laughs>